0: Hey, this is Todd Burns from Red Bull Music Academy. Welcome to Couch Wisdom, our regular podcast presenting the best of RBMA's lecture archive. Young Guru is more than just an engineer. As Jay-Z's right-hand man in Studio Matters, he oversees everything from sequencing to mixing as well as dashing back and forth when Jay wants to change a line or two. In this lecture at the 2011 Red Bull Music Academy, he takes in early years in Delaware, stealing records from his friends' houses to scour for samples, and talks about his work with Jay Electronica. During the lecture, he outs himself as an underground snob, but he insists that from his perspective, you have to make your records for the people, not just your friends on the internet. If you want to learn more about the Academy, please stay tuned after the lecture. For now, enjoy this bit of Couch Wisdom.
1: So please join me in welcoming Young Guru.
2: I always feel weird when people clap for me. I'll
1: <laughs> we'll get used to it. It's going to happen a couple of times. Um, so you are Jay-Z's personal... You describe it for us, I guess. Uh, It's weird.
2: I am Jay-Z's engineer, personal engineer, uh, but my job encompasses so much more than that. Um, I kind of say that I'm in charge of the sound of Jay-Z, basically, Um, engineering-wise, mixing on certain records. uh, But a lot of times I'm kind of the guy choosing who mixes what records. Um, I basically hold all of his music, so his whole career sits in hard drives in uh, safes in my house. Uh, and I basically take care of everything that he needs music-wise, um, but that encompasses a lot of things. Uh, so engineering is just a part of it. There's a little bit of A&Ring that comes into it uh, because Jay-Z's not the normal artist who has an A&R. He's kind of his own A&R, head of the label and artist, all wrapped in one. So whatever he needs music-wise uh, is what I contribute to. Um I've been doing that basically for him since nineteen ninety nine. Uh, I mean it's an incredible experience. I'm I'm extremely blessed to have worked with him for this long. I think we just have a comfortable working relationship and there's a huge amount of trust there, uh, which is the reason why I've kind of stuck around all this time. Um and I couldn't ask for a better boss. He was one of the best bosses in the world. Um, but he's not the only person that I work for, you know. I, I do work for Whoever, whenever, whenever I can. Um, That also entails, you know, the rest of when we had Rockefeller uh, and now Rock Nation. So um, it's 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 an interesting job and he's an interesting person. And as he grows and matures, you know, all of our lives are affected by that. Mm -hmm. Um, So it just keeps getting bigger and bigger. And I always look at him and I'm like, okay, how much further can we go? We just it just keeps going and going and going. It's a beautiful experience.
1: Now, I know we have some hip-hop fans here. We may have some who are not quite as familiar with uh, the entire catalog. So maybe, I think you have something queued up maybe that you wanted to, to sort of drop as a very quick
2: Yeah, this example. is Run This Town. Um, this was a song that I recorded and mixed for Blueprint 3.
0: Hey there. At this point in the lecture, they played some music. Unfortunately, due to copyright reasons, we can't play that here. Yeah, I'm bummed too. Anyway, uh, enough from me. Let's go back to Couch Wisdom.
1: So I guess tell us a little bit about, you know, using this as an example, uh, the process. Um,
2: it's, this was a fun record to make. Um, w- when we did Blueprint 3, we we had like a bunch of start and stops. Um, Jay-Z's a very vibey artist if you want to put it that way. Um, and it, it makes my life a little difficult, but um, nothing is ever really super planned out. I never get a phone call like, okay, we're going to start a session at five o'clock today in the afternoon. Like, it doesn't really work like that. He just vibes and goes in the studio whenever he wants to. That's kind of the the pluses of owning your own studio. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we had started, and he wasn't really catching a vibe. So... Um, there's another problem that I have with Jay and Kanye being such huge artists is that when I try to record in New York, it's it's so many people that stop by the studio and they have so many side businesses, both of them, that it's like, you know, it's hard to get them to concentrate sometimes. And it's not like this; these are frivolous things. The You know, Kanye's trying to make clothes and Jay's running... Uh, 40 40 businesses, which is you know for those that don't know that's his string of, of sports bars You know, he also is a co-owner of the Nets um, He just has so many things going on. So when he's in New York He gets pulled in so many different directions and specifically one day where I was trying to work with him and Kanye It just ended up being like 10 extra people in the studio and and you know, it was a cool vibe But it was like it's totally distracting from making music so, uh, one of the guys that works with Kanye, Don C., mm-hmm. you know, kind of pulled me to the side, and he was like, you know, go. if you want to get these guys to really work, you need to come with us to Hawaii. You need to, like, just bring the whole thing to Hawaii so we can really focus, and nobody will stop by, and nobody can just, you know, you're in New York, everybody's 10 blocks away or five blocks away. So, what we did was... Uh, Jay, myself, uh, Kanye has a, a set place that he works in in Hawaii, so we invited Timberland down as well, and we just went down there for about a week, week and a half, just strictly to get away and to work on music, and this was one of the tracks that came out of that. Okay. Um, so it was a beautiful experience of just getting away, not having any distractions, um, waking up in the morning, you know, go play basketball, eat breakfast, and then get to the business of making music. Mm-hmm. Um and this track kinda took me back to like the the raw Kanye, which is what I love. Um and it was just a, a great experience. Kanye actually didn't lay his verse until we got back to New York City, but just the whole concept of the song came about out there and the Hawaii we had started and stopped maybe two times. So then the Hawaii trip kind of focused our whole thing for that album. So for me, that was the the key was to get away. And sometimes that's what you, you need to do is to not have those distractions and mm-hmm. to sort
1: of get away to make music. Um, once you got to Hawaii, I guess, can you talk a little bit about, um, you know, just the process of being in that studio, working with Kanye, working with Jay and getting it to the point where well, you know what, it is? What we did first,
2: um, there, there's three rooms in that studio, some great, like beautiful rooms. Both of them are SSL rooms. Uh, We had Timberland upstairs and we had uh, Kanye downstairs. So we kind of had like a powwow meeting um, just to say, okay, well, where are we going with this record? Because I think a lot of times people don't get a focus or, or they just start making music without even being focused as to what the artist wants or what producers want to do. So we had this big powwow argument meeting, if you want to call it that, um, about where, you know, it's the discussion of where music is going, where hip hop is going, and then where we need to go. Um, And that was what came out of that, because we were kind of complaining about, as I normally do, you know, where hip hop is at the given moment, because I I hate the little gimmicky hip hop. I'm, I'm sort of a traditionalist purist, but I'm not against new forms of the music. I just don't like the the gimmicky part of it or the people that are just doing things um, just to get a little quick hit. Mm-hmm. So that was really where the uh, initial song DOA came from, because if you remember at the time, it was like T-Pain auto-tune was just everywhere in music. So it's it was sort of getting to the point where it's like, I want to throw up because everybody just uses auto-tune, 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 and it's getting on my nerves. And it's like, okay, if that, is DOA, which is, for those that don't know, it's called Death of Auto-Tune. It was one of our first records off of Blueprint 3. It wasn't really a diss to T-Pain. It was sort of a diss to everyone else that was using this T-Pain effect. Um, And it's just like, as an engineer, it's like, okay, we're all stuck on this one effect, and there's so many vocal effects or so many things that you should be trying uh, other than this one. It's like, okay, this is the T-Pain setting. And then everybody just used that. There's no experimentation when that happens and every single record starts to sound exactly the same. So that was the result of that conversation. was like, we're going to smash everything that's out there right now and totally take hip hop to a different direction, which I think is sort of our responsibility at this time is to sort of lead and to show people that you don't have to follow the trend in order to do this or that. And we're also in a position where you know we can afford to do that. Meaning that if it didn't work, you know, we could go try something else. Whereas a new artist is kind of using that to get their foot in the door. Whereas, you know, I, I'm not really concerned with album sales at this point. You know, it's about adding on to a legacy of music versus trying to use some some new gimmick. But I, I do feel like we can direct the culture mm-hmm. uh, into better places. And, and I think that's our responsibility at this time. So that was really what the result of that conversation was, was to bring hip hop back to this pure thing. And there's there's been a couple times when we purposely try to do that. Blueprint, the first blueprint was that. You know, hip hop right. was very, uh, how should I say, Swiss is a good friend of mine. And Swiss was known for using the Triton and the Trinity and there's sort of classic sounds in there. But then everyone in hip hop started copying that sound and everyone started sounding like him. So then with the original Blueprint, um, you know, Justin, Kanye took us back to actually sampling again and and, and specifically soul samples, which was sort of this feel that we were missing in hip hop at the time. And again, it's done on purpose to to kind of direct the culture to say it's cool to be different and not copy what's going on. You know, the, the whole thing about copying is just like you'll never be great by copying someone else because they'll be at the top of the, the ladder and you'll always be underneath of them like it's, it's cool to look at other people's style and to incorporate it but to like strictly copy it you'll never win that way and you know that, that happens in hip-hop kind of periodically like every four or five years there'll be a new style that'll come in and people just automatically gravitate towards it and copy it but then the person that breaks out of that mode becomes the next style so, you know, we, we've we seen it over and over again. Puffy was jacking 80s songs and just, like, looping up the whole eight bars. And then people started doing that. And then, you know, that's another point where you're like, oh, I want to throw up. You know what I mean? It, it, and then you have to change that. And then it keeps going and going and going. So we try to direct the culture at this point. Right. And
1: just, I guess, on a more specifically technical level, though, um, Maybe well, you could maybe you could break down a little bit of, of, of well, how this, this was pieced together. Yeah, this record is
2: dope because there's um there's just a quick loop that's actually from a library record. Um that's actually the guitar part. Um then there's uh like a classic drum break underneath of it. Um and then Kanye starts to layer um, synths on top. And again, Hip hop is one of those weird things where it's like producers sometimes sit in a room by themselves and just make music, and you know, in, in some genres as well, you know, you're sitting in a room by yourself. Where I always preach to people that I don't care who you are if, if you're not like Prince, most of the best music is made by groups of people. Mm-hmm. Um, no one kind of just makes these incredible records just on their own. Like you can produce a record in your room by yourself but it's good to be around other musicians and to get other vibes and to get other opinions when you're you're making a record. So Kanye has like a a good staff of people. Um, Jeff is one of his keyboard players and uh, Mike Dean is also one of his keyboard players and engineers. So they start to layer sounds um, and just little keyboard sounds. And then when we were I was mixing the song, and Jay was looking at me, and he was like, "I still don't feel like it's it's army enough." That was the word he was using. Like sometimes, as an engineer or as a producer, you have to take layman's terms and translate them into musical terms. So when or Jay, yeah, or technical terms, when Jay was saying "army" or like stomping, he just didn't feel like he he, he kept saying, "I wanted to feel like a like a, a, a army is marching down the street." So I had this little sound that Just Blaze, who was another great producer that um, we've worked with over the years, had put in a Memphis Bleak record, and I remember it being like this stomp sound. So I called Just and I was like, "Yo, I'm going to steal this sound from this other record." And he was like, "Cool, I don't care." And I, I kind of just layered it, you know, underneath the kick to give it that extra like. <clears throat> so instead of the instead of the kick just hitting boom, there's like a <clears throat> sound that goes along with the kick that kind of adds to the marching feel of the record, um, and there's not, this wasn't a super complicated uh, mix, it was It was basically those elements, Jay's raps, Kanye's raps, and uh, Rihanna's singing, um, and I didn't, sometimes you have to, you, we have all these tools at our disposal, and we wanna like show off sometimes as engineers and producers that we're doing all this sophisticated stuff with all the equipment, but, the overall point that you have to remember is that it's, it's about really like what comes out of these two speakers and that your audience doesn't know anything about the technical side of you making the record. All they know is the feel of what they feel. And as producers and engineers, you kind of have to remember that it's the sort of like forgetting everything, you know, for the feel of the record. So this record was almost all the way there. Um, In the rough stages, so I didn't want to add a whole bunch of effects and all this other stuff that takes away from it It's really supposed to feel like this this army marching down the street because it's called run this town And it's like sort of like us taking over the town basically So that's what the video, you know adds to and that was the whole feel of the record Um, I mixed it on a on a SSL um, my normal stuff I, I love API preamps. I love API Eqs, 550 A's, 550 B's uh those that Eq with um, distressors is probably my kick and snare combination for the past ten years because um, I can kind of dial in the harmonics on on a distressor and the API just adds this it's different. I describe everything different. SSL has like a super punch. Um, Neves are very warm and sweet Like I love Neves on vocals um, And they can also distort well Like the distortion coming from a Neve is incredible So for guitars, like Neves are crazy You can turn Neves up and still get Like the sweetest, just ugly Ugly to me sometimes is, is good mm-hmm. Right, so I get like the ugliest distortion from Neves And then APIs are just like They're, they're in between like punchy and gritty and and they're just like the best thing for me on kicks and snares. That's really my thing. I want my drums to outdo everyone. Right. That that's sort of my calling card is I, I want to out knock everyone on the drum tip. Mm-hmm. Um, so APIs to me do that extremely well.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, just backtracking just one step um, when you mentioned um, you know borrowing a sound from just to sort of add a little extra layer. What, um, you know, you you mentioned collaboration. So I think, like, a lot of times people get caught up like, oh, so-and-so produced this or so-and-so is responsible for this and this is the line between this job and this job. So you're in a situation, I guess, where um, you you mentioned Kanye has his own engineers as well. You're there. He's also producing the track, but then you're also adding something as well. So I just wonder if if there's any kind of... um, are there any rules with this sort of thing depending on who's involved? Oh, well, yeah, if if it's
2: people that are outside of your family, like I wouldn't necessarily do that to another producer, but I consider just like family. He's like a friend. Um, so of course I would call them But there there are rules and regulations But I'm not, you know If I'm in the middle of mixing a record And, and someone's asking for it to sound like this I'm not going to necessarily ask for credit For adding a little simple sound like that Even though that is part of production But you have to understand that We've worked together since about 1998, 1999 Making a ton of records So when we get into that situation It's more about facilitating the record. If I was just Joe Blow and I added to this record that I know is gonna be on a Jay-Z album, then yes, I want credit. But if I'm already mixing all the records, you know what I mean? And I've produced records, it's 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 just me adding a sound to a certain degree. But it's it's also in the context that all of us are in this group that are like, you know, I consider everyone to be family to a certain extent. So, you know, while Kanye is down working with his engineers, I may be tracking vocals for Jay-Z. Timberland has another engineer working with him. Um, but like I said, at the end of the day, my responsibility is to be over the whole project, um jay doesn't look at it like okay this person do this this person do that this person do that he looks at it like okay guru why is this not done so i'm i kind of got to be responsible um you know and he thinks it's a joke sometimes and like people laugh in the studio my responsibility is to get the whole thing done so A funny story is like, uh, you know, I'll go to mastering and, you know, my mastering engineer knows that this is, whenever I come with a Jay-Z record, this is about to be an adventure. Like there's, I've never walked in, even though I try every time, like the best thing would be to walk in with 12 songs and to go, okay, um, here, Tony, take this and master it. It never works that way. I walk in with maybe five songs done and I'm like, okay, start on these, I'll be back tomorrow. And then I'm, going, I'm running back and I'm finishing mixes and I'm running around town checking on other people's mixes and things like that. Um, when we finished this record, I went to mastering and I thought I was finished. And then Jay comes in, walks into mastering, he sits down and I'm like, I'm calling him to listen to the sequence and, you know, like the spacing in between the records. And while he's sitting there, he goes, OK, I got a better verse for that record. So we're like at mastering, you know what I'm saying? And we run back to the studio, <laughs> re-record a verse. And I don't, you know, artists don't always understand, like, if you, okay, yeah, you want to switch out a verse, it's real quick, I already mixed the record, I can fit it back in real quick, but then that means I have to do seven passes again. I have to do the main, the instrumental, the TV, the clean, um, you know, w- whatever all these other passes are. So we do that, we go back, I go back to mastering again, I put it back together. Uh, run back to the studio, he listens again, and then he starts naming all these things that he wants to change. Now mind you, he's going on vacation the next day, right? right? It's like him and Beyonce sitting in the studio, uh, one of the, we call him OG Juan, which is Jay's partner with the 4040s, he's also the owner of the studios. He's finding all of this super hilarious, right? Like this is super funny to him because he knows I'm not going to sleep and they're about to go on vacation like their bags are packed and they're like all right we're out the door. So as I'm sitting there, you know, it becomes one thing, two things, three things and I'm like all right, I need to start breaking out the paper. So I break out a piece of paper and by the time Jay's done it's like there's seven different things that he wants to change. So it's like that became the joke of the of the night because I'm like all right, I'm really not going anywhere. So I call Tony back up, we have to change all these things. Um this is also a point where I have to start making decisions. So it's like, yes, I would love to mix the whole record, but for time-wise, I don't have that ability because he's changing all these things. So this is when my A&R hat comes on and I'm calling Doro, who's another great engineer in New York City. Um, And I'm like, okay, I don't want to disrespect Doro because he's sort of like my person that I used... We're kind of the same age, but he's the person that I'd look to to kind of follow his career. Um, Because at the time when I came to New York, there were no like young black engineers. So he's the guy that I looked and was like, okay, well, who manages you? Because if I find your manager, then I can get on. That's that's how our relationship started. But needless to say, he's another guy who I trust. Um, so I had to reach out. I'm like, okay, I have this great song called New York City and I need you to mix this record. Like I was gonna mix it, but now I have to change all these things. So I reached out to him, um, gave him that record. That way I can relax. And I know that he's gonna do a great job with it. I don't have to be over his shoulder call me when you're finished with that record. I'll be back over here to pick it up. Right, being
1: able to delegate.
2: Yeah. That's when it leaves just being an engineer and it becomes the the sort of A&R mode. So like I said, it's it's whatever is necessary to get the record finished. Mm-hmm. Um, fun, it, 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 like, it never stops. So I fix all these little things. It may be one thing where Jay's like, okay, take this old, take this new hook that I did out and put the old hook back. Um... Take this verse that I did out, put the old verse back. Like, it'll be little things like that. So I run back to mastering. I'm finally finished. Tony's like, guru, don't call me again. You know, like, <laughs> all of those things. I, I, I get the final CD. Jay's on vacation now. Um, our studio is Baseline Studios uh, in New York. So I run back to Baseline. I'm, like, about to relax and, like, listen to the Blueprint 3 all the way through. So I rip it, send it to Jay. I'm sitting there relaxed and I'm like smoking and I'm lo- I'm listening and this is my dirty version and on one of the songs there's a clean hook. So I'm like, oh, fuck. So I got to run back. You know, I got to call Tony again and I'm like, because we were rushing to change everything, I got, I'm like, he's probably on the BQE home, <laughs> you know, turn around, come back to mastering. We got to switch this. This was wrong. Um, and we finally switched back to the dirty hook and I sent it to Jay and I'm like, to finish, but it never it, it's like that's the things that i have to go through to make sure that the album comes out the way it's supposed to come out
1: who's who's your mastering engineer Is
2: uh tony dawson tony dawson yeah, former yeah, he, rbma lecturer he's he's incredible he's incredible he's one of those guys that we he's mastered everything that i've done again for like maybe the past 10 15 years So I don't have to like super be over his shoulder and it gives me a comfort level of being able to just hand him records and then run back and do something else. And then when I come back and there's little tweaks that I may have to do and say, okay, I want this to be a little bit more pronounced or I can give him those notes beforehand and I'll listen to my mix. I know my room and I know his room. So I listen to my mix in his room and I go, all right, Tony, help me out. Like, I need you to boost the bass at such and such and, you know, clean this up a little bit or clear this up. And it's just, its again, it's a comfort level from someone that I've worked with for so many years. You know, a normal mastering engineer is not going to keep coming in and going home and coming in and going home. Like, you know, it ends up being four or five different
1: little sessions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I mean, uh, it's... That's what you're saying, I think, is so applicable to what, you know, everybody here is doing, too, because it's it's about collaboration, it's about trust and relationships, you know. That's part
2: of the job. Like, stuff comes up, and you you can't just be like, oh, shit. You know what I mean? You got to stay calm. You got to figure it out, and, like, hopefully you prepared enough, and you got a good enough team that doesn't, like, sweat, but things happen like that. Like, you have to figure it out in the middle of it, or and you got to, like, kind of bullshit your way. Threw it to the audience.
1: What, off the top of your head, is what's like uh, where you had to really jerry rig something. Can you think of something, an example of oh, that? Where... Man, I've
2: done, I've done a, You, you would, you would be surprised at how many like super professional shows are going on, and there's like tape on the back of a speaker or something like that like connecting a lead like there's no time to like solder things together or like somebody's physically like holding a wire for two hours connected to a speaker like you you do whatever you have to do to get it done like you know like that's that's part of my come up though like when I you know I, I was born in 74 I'm 37 I know I look like a little kid but I'm 37. So, like, I used to do parties in Wilmington, Delaware. I don't know if you guys are familiar with with the states, but there's, like, Jer- New Jersey's here. Pennsylvania's, right right here, and at the, the corner of Pennsylvania where Pennsylvania and New Jersey meet, right in that little thing is Delaware. It's this little small place. That's where I'm from. So, growing up, like, there were no, like, clubs in my area. Like, when we partied, it was sort of, like, in fire halls, and uh, school auditoriums and like people's houses. You know what I mean? So I would drive a half hour, and my DJ thing wasn't, a, uh, it, this is at 14, 15 years old. So it wasn't a thing where it's like, uh, just roll in with some records or roll in with Serato. Like when somebody came into me in cafeteria and was like, hey, I want you to do my party. You know what I mean? That means I'm getting in a truck with this, like I have to pack all of this, amps, mics, mixers, lights, the whole nine. And then I might be packing all this stuff, drive for like an hour and a half, you know what I mean, down the road and then get there and be like, oh, shit, I forgot my headphones. You know what I mean? And then have to just feel like where the record starts and you're just you're on someone's like mom's washer and dryer, like in their basement. You know, you just have to you have to get through whatever you, you know, whatever you can do to get through it. Um, but that also builds up your like confidence so that when you do get into a situation where you're like, oh, I got two hours to go sound check and you know, put all this stuff together professionally, it doesn't bother you. Like the whole thing is to get through the gig. And that's what people come to trust in you, is that okay, not only can this person do the job, but they can solve problems. Like that's part of being an engineer, is to is to solve problems. That's like the real definition of being an engineer, not just a musical engineer. Like, I went to school, This my mom was always putting me in these little programs and all this, but I went to this program called Fame. It's formed for the advancement of minorities in engineering. But that was like engineering, like civil engineering, like building a bridge. But it's really problem solving. It's like, I want to get from this side to that side, and you build a bridge. Or I don't know how to make this work or that work. And that's what, that's what engineering is, is really... Solving problems.
1: Uh, actually, I'm glad you touched on you know DJing as a, as a kid and stuff like that. Because uh, actually, next thing I wanted to ask you was about you know coming up in your background. Um, so you grew up in Delaware. Yeah,
2: born 1974. Mm-hmm. Grew up in Wilmington, Delaware. Um, people always get this confused. My my mother's from Newark, New Jersey. Okay. My father's from Washington D.C. So I was born and raised in Delaware, but my whole life I'm bouncing back and forth in between these two places to go visit a lot of family. So, uh, again, for those that don't know, Washington, D.C. is sort of, it's the capital, but it's like this island culture-wise. Because D.C. doesn't, everybody, people are going to be pissed when I say this, but <laughs> from Delaware up, right, Philly, all this other stuff, people kind of look towards New York for styles, for sounds, and things of that nature. Don't get me wrong, Philly has a different style than New York, but from Delaware up, we kind of look towards New York. And when you go beyond DC, when you get into like Virginia, North Carolina, and all that stuff, they look towards the South for their style and, 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 and music and the way they dress. And then once you get past like the mountain ranges, everything else, Midwest, all of that stuff, used to look towards the West Coast mm-hmm. for style and sound. Washington, D.C. is this, li- it's its its our capital, but it's so small. It could care less what anybody else is doing in the United States. Go-Go music is probably the prominent music in Washington, D.C. And not just the music, but the style, the way people dress, the way people talk. They could really care less what you're doing anywhere else. So D.C. was like this great place that was completely different than anywhere else, and musically and style-wise. And then... New Jersey was great because New Jersey's always been on its own form of club music. What what some people call, you know, house... There's all these different terms or whatever. Like, Chicago house is different from Baltimore house is different from Jersey house. So, Chicago is sort of the birthplace home. Chicago and Detroit battle back and forth with their styles of house music. Baltimore is sort of this... um, It's the music that like just repeats one phrase. Like, I'll beat that bitch with a bat. You're gonna do this all night. It's the same phrases all over again, over again, over again, over again, all night. Jersey is much more soulful where we have fully written out songs. Yeah, and in a a different tradition um, than everyone else. So it's like bouncing in between Jersey and DC gave me a different perspective than everyone that's just sitting in Delaware listening to Philly radio stations right. um, but that was my upbringing so as a kid I mean like I can remember as early as like seven or eight years old I had older cousins that were like four or five years older than me that were sort of bringing me <laughs> sort of like into this scene that didn't exist before so Every area in Delaware is known for certain things. Certain areas are known for basketball. Certain areas are known for, you know, illegal stuff. Certain areas are known for whatever. Our area just birthed like the best B Boys and the best DJs. So we would go around and like battle everybody in terms of breakdancing and in terms of uh, DJing and we would smash everybody. And that was sort of what my side of town was known for. So I'm really just following the older guys in my neighborhood and they were the first ones that I knew that had Technique 1200 so it was like I would I used to be in their basement practicing on like little Mickey Mouse turntables and then they got 1200, and that's the first time I ever you know I like fell in love with it and and that's really what the start of it was this is like maybe 81 82 you know what I mean and and from that point on it was just like okay this is the thing that I want to do for the rest of my life. It just clicked like that. This is way before, you got to remember at this point, like hip hop's not a job and it's not like ever. It's seen, not even a genre. Yeah, back. it's not even a genre yeah. of music yet. You know what I mean? It's something that we like go get some cardboard and we're going to go battle these dudes in the 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 uh, parking lot. You know what I mean? Of of whatever school that we choose. And that's really what it was. It was still an emerging culture, like in everybody in our town didn't even know what it was yet. It was still this thing that was like filtering down from New York City and from Philadelphia at the time. And then like, you know, 83 Run DMC hits and that was sort of like this big boom to the the rest of the world that, oh, this is what the kids are doing. This is what this thing is. But it was sort of like our, uh, I guess you want to call it anti-culture because we weren't disco you know that wasn't really our thing that was like our older cousins we we were we that that looked foreign to me like it looked kind of funny like the kids walking around with the spikes on and the the disco we thing was just it was just super weird to me like hip hop was the thing that was like ours and no one understood it and i loved it like that like that was the be- we had our own language we had our own expression and our own way of of doing things and um Back then, people used to look crazy when I would like walk into a record store and start buying all these old, rare records. And back then it was like, you know, 50 cent a dollar or, you know, the first thing you do is you run over your friend's house and you start raping his father's record collection. You know what I mean? Like my father was great with like funk records and slow records. Um, One of my best friends, his father was an avid jazz collector. So I just used to go over there and just like run through his records and then like wait for him to leave. And then I'd like grab 20 and run out the house and take him to my, like that was the whole thing. And, And just going in dollar bins and finding records, um, but it was like an education process because it was, it was sort of weird to me. At first, I thought everything came out of drum machines because I knew
1: Run DMC. Those were the records that were coming out. Well,
2: yeah, I, yeah, I knew Run DMC made their records with certain drum machines and I would ask questions. But then um, Ultramagnetic came out with Critical Beatdown. I forget exactly what year that was. And I was just blown away. Like I was like, what beat machine is that that they have that makes that drum like that? And then that's when I started to realize, you know, my man was like, nah, they're, they're taking this from this and taking that from that. And it wasn't until like people st- like I heard a James Brown break on there and I'm like, oh, OK, that's what they're doing. Because I thought they were just programming from a beat machine and it just opened up this whole other world of beat digging. And then once you go, you got to remember now that there's the Internet and people will get on and they can easily find whatever it is that they want to find this is like completely blind this is like I'm just going in and I just start listening to records so you might get up at like six o'clock in the morning and go to the record store and be in there and then turn around and it's like eight o'clock at night and you you it felt like two hours you know it was just, it was just that type of thing um and it was just this, a, a beautiful experience of just finding new records and find and then and then the, the ultimate would be to find something that you heard on someone's album. And it's like, oh that's where they got it from. It's like this big discovery period. Right. But you that was my musical education into all these different forms of music. Um and I also went to you know my schools that i went to i went to play basketball at a bunch of different schools so i would be around different people than just my friends so then i started to learn other types of music from all these different people and that was really my musical education growing up
1: now um you went to howard university? oh
2: absolutely man I was yes like, let me tell you something i might be the proudest person to ever go to howard university this is, for me, this was the best decision that I ever made in my life. And it was the right time.
1: How many folks know or familiar with Howard University in Washington, D.C.? It's
2: like, a, it's a predominantly black, uh, well, not for, it's all black, but it's a HBCU. Um, it's the alma mater of Sean Carter. I mean, of, 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 of Puffy. Of, of, I mean, I could go down the line of people that went there from like Diggable Planets to Shy to, uh, these were all people that were in school with me at the time. Um, It just birthed so many artists and so many different people, but it was just the most dynamic experience. Um, Most of my best friends are people that I met while I was going to school at Howard. All of my experience of like first getting up in front of an audience to like play music that I just made last night. Like most of you probably know that feeling like I made this beat last night. I wonder what everybody's going to think about it. And having... A representation of all 50 states in one place was a great thing as a DJ. uh, Because you can get locked into playing for just one specific type of people. So when I'm playing at Howard, I could play a record and then these are my friends, but like, one of my guys is going to come up and be like, yo, where's all the West Coast music? Another guy is going to come up and be like, yo, where's all the down South music? And another guy is going to come up and be like, yo, where's all the reggae? And then a DC person is going to be like, yo, you're not playing no go-go? Like, you have to service all these people within a four-hour period. So it opens your mind to all these different types of music, and you got to stay current with all these different types of music. And again, these are not like strangers. These are my friends. So it's not like, ah, get out of here. I really do have to service all these different people as a DJ. And then I had to learn to play records that I didn't like necessarily. Um, Because you, you start to understand that if you're just gonna play music you like, you might as well just sit in your room. You have to play what the audience wants to hear. I think that's one of the biggest things that people don't understand that when you wanna release commercial music, yes, you, you have to find that balance. You have to find the balance between what is best for you and what your audience wants. If you think about it like if you open a restaurant and you make chicken and... Everybody's coming back to you like I like my chicken like this, but you're like no the way I make chicken is this way this way And these are my spices. eventually you're not gonna have anybody buying your chicken But if you listen to your audience and say okay, everyone's telling me they like this type of spice So let me try to put that type of spice in there in my way mm-hmm. It's it's you have to understand how to service your your audience And that's one of the things that people miss because we get so into this is what i'm doing this is who i am i'm expressing myself yes you can do that but understand that once you ask someone to buy a record you're in the 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 service business you're giving you're you're selling something so now the customer is always right to me and i think that's sort of like the key to certain success whereas a lot of my friends who um we all come from this super like underground thing. Like we we are the carriers of the underground music. We love like my friends in my circle. We love underground music, and we're just like, it, it seems weird. Like this like like there's this um uh, there's there's this great like thing where I can exist in the underground, but also make commercial music and sell commercial music because of the way that I view it. And like the underground is like my love and where my heart is. And if you're with me on a normal day, I'm probably like playing Dilla all day, right? But but then when I move into my commercial aspect, I'm looking at numbers and sales and regions and I'm, I'm figuring out what's the best way to present the music that I make or that the artists that I work with to the public. Um, I always think of it like this. Like when I'm in the creative process, I don't want to think about none of that. None of the pop stuff, none of the commercial stuff when we're making the music. Now, once I'm done making the music, I turn my hat around and I go, okay, what's the best way to sell this? And to and I'm also thinking about the career of this artist versus like, I don't want to work with an artist that's just, you know, he's here this year and then he's gone. Like I'm trying if I work with you, I'm trying to build a career. And so that you can stay in this for like 10 years. So that's the whole purpose. And some people can do this really well, and some people can do this really well, but it's hard to find somebody that understands both sides of it.
1: Well, you have, in DC, um, you began working with an artist um, who had a big hit. Yeah, uh,
2: in, in ni- what was that, 1996. Okay, I had to make this huge decision. So I went to school in 1992. I was supposed to graduate in 1996. Uh, in 1996, I had my first child at the age of 22. So I'm I'm sitting in D.C., I'm scared shitless, right? I'm like, oh, man, I got a baby on the way. Like, I can't sit here and just keep making this couple dollars DJing. Um, so I, I ended up hooking up with this girl named Nonchalant. She had a song called 5 uh, o'clock in the morning. It was a, a, a real big single. Um, the album didn't sell as much, but it was a super huge single. It took us around the world. Um, and in at the end of our tour We ended up doing this one show In Miami And we opened up for the Fugees in 96 And it just so happened that like My camp and the people that were with me We knew all the people that were in the Fugees Because we're all from like the same area around New Jersey um, You know, Lawrence from Ivy Hill um, Clef and them is from Irvington um, And that's all areas like around where my family stayed at. So they just, you know, very, no pun intended, very nonchalantly was like, You guys wanna open up for us on, you know, on our European leg of the tour? And we were like, Hell yeah. So we ended up doing three months of the Ready or Not tour. And that was sort of my first, I had done spot dates and, you know, you fly in, da 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 da, but that was like my first major, major tour where like the tour bus drives into the venue and, you know, everything is like super professional where you're not like fighting with the sound man. You know, you get as long as you want for sound check. Uh, you know, there's there's computerized EQs that saves the EQ setting for your voice. You know, a professional tour. Um, that was my first one. And it was just a great experience to see it at that level. I think that was the first time where I was just like, okay, this hip-hop thing is like worldwide. And... I didn't. I didn't quite understand the idea of someone in like Germany listening to records that I had done, or listening to hip hop at all. I didn't. I didn't get that back then. Um, and that tour kind of opened me up to the world that the world listens to this music, and that this is possible to actually be a worldwide career for the rest of my life. That tour was sort of that moment where that clicked for me.
1: Yeah, and and from working with Nonchalant, you also met a,
2: another mentor of yours, correct? Yeah. So and who would that be? Uh, Chucky Thompson, who was uh, a bad boy producer. Puff had a, a conglomerate of producers called the Hitmen. It was about ten guys. Chucky Thompson was one of those guys. What happened was Nonchalant started on her second album, um, and and there, and there was also something key there too. When we came back, that was when I... My school, I went to this school called Omega Recording Studios. Like, most people in the United States, they try to go to Full sale, right? Because it's like the premier engineering school. But Full sale is expensive. Um, you know. And back then, they didn't really have the a financial aid thing popping like that. It was just like, okay, pay for full sale. So I'm like, I can't afford full sale. I got a kid on the way. So I found a studio in Rockville, Maryland. It's called Omega Studios that was teaching engineering. And again, it's just by luck of the draw, one of the best decisions I ever made because there were maybe like six, seven people in my class. and it was a working studio. My professors were actual working engineers. So one person would teach you the SSL, one person would teach you the Neve, one person would teach you the APIs. There was no like Pro Tools back then. Um, There was a program called Sonic Solutions that people kind of used to master two-track programs. Um, And a company that's no longer around called Opcode had this uh, program called Studio Vision. Which was just MIDI at the time, but then Studio Vision Pro came out. And then that was the first time I ever saw like audio being recorded into a computer along with MIDI. And that shit blew my mind. Like I was like, oh my God, we don't need tape no more. Like I was there for that first initial, like, okay, I get it. Because I'm one of those people that like was mad that I didn't put money into like Microsoft and like once Steve Jobs and and and, and Bill Gates like did what they did with personal computing. I was like, "Oh, man, I, how did I not see this?" You know what I mean? Like I, I got it instantly like, "Oh, wow, these guys are about to just dominate." Like do, back then. Because I saw what it was. Because the computer does this thing forever where it gets faster and smaller, faster and smaller fa- forever. It's it's a, it's just what happens with computers. But needless to say, um I went to school at the, and finished my schooling at that time. So The reason that that was so special was because I met Chucky Thompson, who became one of my best mentors. But my first, like, real I'm in the hot seat sessions was with my own group. So he was executive producing her second album. So the nervousness that you kind of have of like figuring out, the equipment and knowing how everything works and actually being in a session was with my own group so it was it was just so much more relaxing to like figure everything out because it was my music or you know the group that i was with but through working with chucky he got comfortable with me i got comfortable with him um and then he started bringing me into all the stuff that he was doing with bad boy he had started chuck life uh which was a record label he was dealing with in dc but he would still do a lot of stuff in new york so he would start telling people like, okay, you have to fly my engineer to New York with me. Um, And he would just take me everywhere he went. Like I would normally track stuff and then go with him to New York. And he was the bridge that introduced me to another great engineer, uh, uh, Tony. Uh, Tony Maserati is an incredible engineer who did a lot of stuff for Puff. And Chucky was the person that just sat me in the room with him and was like, watch him and figure out whatever he's doing um and then tony kind of opened up. at first he wasn't that open to me as you know tony is but then i watched him smoke these i always tell the story i watched him smoke these specific type of cigars so then i went to the store and bought like a box of those cigars so that the next day when he walked in i had like the cigar on the desk and then he was like yo who bought the cigars and i was like me or whatever boom 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 and then we kind of struck a relationship to him it's probably nothing he probably just thinks of it as normal conversation, but I'm like being like this super observant, watching every move that he made, every twist of every knob. Um, To this day, I turn my NS10s up. Like most people have the NS10s flat, and I turn mine up. It's All of that comes from Tony Maserati. So it's like one thing leads to the, another leads to another. Like relationships are just as important as the information that you get. Like the information makes you ready. The relationship is going to actually get you in a door to use what you know. Um, and that, that's also part of the job is, is maintaining relationships. But that's that's how that went. I went from DJing for Nonchalant um, to actually engineering her second album, which hooked me up with Chucky e. Thompson, which got me in the door to New York City, which allowed me to meet Tony Mazzarati, where I learned a whole gang of stuff that you can never learn in a book. Um, and it got me just accustomed to working in New York City. Now, I've been to all the major studios. I know most of the assistants. Uh, and then when it was time for me to leave DC, I already had an in. Yeah. So I just moved from DC to New York, and I was like, all right, I'm going to try my hand at this independent engineering thing. Um, and it was scary at first, but you know, I moved up and again hooked up with someone that i that had went to howard with me which was derek angeletti um he's known as the mad rapper he also produced like uh the benjamins for uh, notorious big hypnotized for notorious big uh and a a slew of records for for puffy you have to remember like all these guys are guys that are like maybe three years older than me in school so i've known all of them for for years and years but it was more of a They were the guys like throwing parties when we were in school. So I would be outside and be like, yo, get me into the party. That was sort of my relationship with them until that point. But yeah, all of that led to me um, actually getting to New York City. And once the Mad Rapper album was done, um, again, I looked at Doro and I was like, trying to figure out who managed him. And I went on this two week like search for his manager. And it just so happened that the girl that was working the front desk and I was, I was mad because I was like, how can I not find, like, who the hell is this person? So the girl that worked the front desk at Crazy Cat, which was the label that De- I was working at with Derek Angeletti, was like, oh, I know this girl named L'Oreal. She manages Toro, or whatever. And I was like, oh, you got to get me in touch with her. That was my uh, first, like, step into becoming, like, independent on my own in terms of engineering. And once I got with her, the next day I was doing a session for, like, DMX. Um, and it just it just never stopped from there.
1: And then, how long was it until you got to start working with uh, Rockefeller Camp and Jay Z?
2: What happened was I did uh, a session for Memphis Bleak. What, what the, uh, interesting things started to happen. Um, it wasn't just me and Doro. It was like me, Doro. There's a guy named Pat Viala. If if you look at a lot of classic like uh, Neptune's records and um, a lot of like Murder Ink stuff. Uh, with Ja Rule and those people. Pat was doing that. Um, There's also a guy named Brian Stanley. Good, good friend. um, Just like there started to be this like little crew of us that were like the Jackie Robinsons. Jackie Robinson is who broke the color barrier in uh, baseball. So it was like a little crew of us that was like, we were all doing major sessions, but we were like all young black guys that were like, we used to be pissed. Because we would try to get sessions and the Allied Pool was like controlling New York City at this time. Tony was in Ally Pool, but it was just a group of older like rock engineers that just had everything on lock. And we would we would record stuff. We would never get to mix anything. So we kinda like just kinda all like in a loose way banded together and we would just all converse with each other and, and, and figure out what everybody else was doing. And that was sort of our way of, of helping each other out. Um So I ended up doing a session for Memphis Bleak because one of the guys couldn't make it that day. And then Bleak and I kind of gravitated towards each other and struck a friendship Um, because a normal engineer is just supposed to sit in there and be quiet and just facilitate the record. But me being me, like I'm producing kind of and engineering at the same time. So Bleak starts doing his rhyme and I'm like, you know, you could kind of say something better here here and here and and, and you know artists are kind of like taken back by that like is this guy like correcting my rhyme you know what I mean like and I'm like yeah like you could do better there's better words for you to say and then it was like they start to get comfortable with you so bleak started asking for me back and I, I owe a majority of whatever else came after that to him just from our relationship of being cool. Um, and then Jay-Z being the CEO or COO you know COO of the label inevitably is going to come by to check on whatever one of his artists is doing. That's how I met Jay. And again, it was like in the middle of a Memphis Bleak session, Jay was working on an album with someone else at the time, but it was like Bleak had got done with his record early. So Jay goes, okay, take that tape down and throw my tape up and let me... And that was the very first time I ever recorded Jay, but it was in the middle of a Memphis Bleak session. So again, Jay-Z doesn't... You know, he doesn't really follow the rules of you need to book a session. It was just like, okay, we're in there. His tape was there. Throw the tape up. Um, and that's how it started. And then he was just like, yo, what are you doing, like, all next week? And I'm like, whatever you need me to be doing. And that just went into... Um, we at Baseline Studios was key to, to sort of the magic that we created. And that place had just been built. So we kind of consolidated everything instead of jumping around to all these different studios. Like, it used to be this thing where you would call Quad and be like, okay, do you have rooms? No, okay, cool. Call Hit Factory, okay, now we're all booked up. You call Sony, okay, we can get in that room for the day, right? And then the next day, somebody else had it, so then you had to jump back to Quad, and it's like, when you have the ability to have your own studio and have this room that you can get comfortable with and know the sound of that room, it makes work flow so much faster, um and I always say this to people like the best music comes from small groups of people coming out of like this same room. Like if you think of the the immense amount of music that Motown put out, it's really about 20 or 30 people in this one room. You know, when you go to Detroit and you and you look at that house, you're like it's amazing that that amount of historical stuff came out of the, it's a little house. It's like this little house in the in Detroit. You know, Hitsville is not this big, like, this place might be bigger than Hitsville. You know what I mean? It's it's this little crib. And and it's really just Smokey Robinson sitting. You know, like, it's it's a small amount of people. And every single time you think about it, Stacks Music is not this super conglomerate of people. You know what I mean? It's 20, 30 people. I mean, including like the secretaries and everybody, it's 20, 30 people. Um, even when you go to like hip hop music, you know, the majority of people that dominated and had runs, if you go from Bad Boy to Death Row to Rockefeller to Murder, it's a small group of people in this one place. And that's what we got when we consolidated every
1: every Like, everything came out of Baseline. Can you talk a little bit about what the um, sort of sonic characteristics were of Baseline to you? What was defining about it? What was acoustically uh, unique about it? Okay, so... Um,
2: that room was designed by uh um what's his name? He's gonna kill me. Um we we had it designed by a Pro Audio Design Malap- his his last name is Malipo, Dave Malipo, um, at Pro Audio Design designed that room. And when it first started, I gave him like two days or whatever, you know what I'm saying, to put the room together and it was sounding like like a real opera room. And I was like, okay, this is completely off. But to his credit, like he like sat there with me for like three days, completely like retuning the room, retuning the room. Re- I'm like, this is what we're about to make in here. This room needs to sound like this. So you, that's a rare opportunity. You don't get to like see a studio from ground up and like tune it exactly the way that you want it. But I had that opportunity, so I'm like, okay, let's tune the room exactly like this. So from the beginning, I got to like make the room the way that I wanted to sound. So. I'm super spoiled that I've never found another room that sounds like that to me. But I kind of learned every nook and cranny of that room. I know exactly what it's supposed to sound like when I stand here, when I stand here, when I stand here. And that's sort of key to when you're making music or engineering. Um because it could sound beautiful to you in your one environment and then you take it somewhere else and you're like, "Oh, it doesn't sound as good." Or you may have too much bass in your room, and then you're not turning the bass up enough, so that then when you leave somewhere, you're like, "Oh, this kick that sounded so great in my room sounds like you know like air somewhere else." Um, and I think that was key sonically to, to the way that I mixed a lot of records was that I completely understood that room. Um, it, 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 we had Genelec um, near fields. I had NS10s, which I absolutely live by. I love NS10s because they're such a crap speaker. You know what I mean? It's like one of the d- nastiest speakers you could get, but if you can get it to sound good on a pair of NS10s, it's going to sound good anywhere. Like sometimes the the Genelex are a little bit too forgiving. You know what I mean? They're sort of like the Dr. Dre headphones. Like you could put the you could put anything through the Dr. Dre headphones, and they're going to sound good, which is not always what you want. You want to be able to hear exactly what's going on. Um, and then we had Osbergers as our mains, and we had like the extra sub Uh and the amps were perfectly tuned to the Ausbergers, like he won't come and put, you have to kind of like buy the amps with the speakers mm-hmm. because he has to tune it exactly like that. But I love the Ausbergers. Ausbergers to me are like some of the best, because they don't tire out after. I, I, I listen to music like super loud in the beginning for maybe about 20 minutes. And then the rest of my mix is sort of quiet and on NS10s or Gen And then at the end, when I have everything together, I'll turn it back up loud because your ears can wear out real easy if you're listening to super loud music for three hours. And you're you're never gonna it's just gonna start sounding like mud. Um, but when you when you turn those Osbergers on, they kick. You know what I mean? I've only seen like one other person that has like probably a more hitting system than that, and that's Dr. Dre. Like mm-hmm. Nobody could probably compete with what he has going on in LA. It's ridiculous, yeah. When I go around now and and I start to talk to people that are interested in audio, there's so much that you can do with the music. Like, there's so many plugins and there's so many ways that you can affect music that people sometimes just start putting things on things just because. And it's like, sometimes you need to step back and listen to the purity of the music. One of the best things that I ever did was start to do some jazz sessions. And coming from hip-hop and going to jazz is like this completely different approach to how you make music. Like, I have to span all these genres of music. And in hip-hop, it's like, okay, I'm doing everything I can to make this the hardest thing. Like, it's got to hit and it's got to knock. Jazz isn't really like that. Like in jazz music, I'm taking two hours or three hours to like set up the microphones and make sure that all, every angle and phasing and all that stuff is perfectly correct. Because when you do a jazz session, you kind of mix as the session is going on. And jazz artists expect to knock out maybe the whole album, maybe two albums in a day. So it's not this extensive, like, you know, we're gonna do all this stuff afterwards, like exactly what's going on in that room is what they wanna hear on tape and you are just going. So you take all this time to get ready, but then you just flow and most of it is just fader levels and I may be compressing a couple of little things or EQing a couple of little things, but it again, it speaks to you not getting in the way of the music, right? So this next record that I'm gonna play, again, it's it's a record by Cameron. it's called Oh Boy but it's 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 one of the the proudest mixes that I have because there's absolutely nothing on this mix extra than there's like maybe one reverb and everything is the SSL. There's no I didn't I didn't insert anything on anything. This whole mix is just the SSL because I'm like I'm pulling up faders, I started messing with stuff and I'm like this sounds great. You know what I mean? And it's, and it's one of those examples where you don't have to, like, just because you're in this room with with Fairchilds and all this, like, super expensive equipment. You, if, if you're standing next to a Fairchild as an engineer, you're like, I have to use this. It's a $20,000 compressor. You know what I mean? It's the greatest thing on earth. But it may not be necessary. And you have to make those determinations and decisions. And that, too, was, like, a super fun record. Like they're not over wrapping the song, you know what I mean. It's not just like super deep. We're gonna have a discussion about the lyrics, you know what I mean. It's just like a fun song, and 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 again, that's what music is. Sometimes it's just having
1: fun. Now, isn't with this specific record too? Isn't wasn't it a case where I feel like I've heard this? Just tell the story that it wasn't. He didn't even yeah okay. deliver a final version of it, and it was already on the radio. Yeah, or? the reason that that happened. Um,
2: Well, if if you listen like intensely, like he says my name in the song, right? He's like, Guru, start popping up. And the original version like ended right there. And that's because this just had made this beat for Jay Z. And Cam had actually asked for this beat like months before he ever did it. And I was like, yo, the beat is for Jay. Just was like, yo, the beat is for Jay. So Cam kind of left it alone. And then months later, like, you know, he was like, yo, he still didn't use that beat. So he was just like, you know, Just wasn't there. He was like, okay, you have to understand, during that time, I would have a a dat with, you know, 20 Kanye. Kanye used to send monthly dats, right? He'd be in Chicago, and he'd send a January dat, and a February dat, and a March dat, right? And then Just Blaze was already in the B room. The B room used to be his little environment. So he would make a ton of beats, and then... You know, Jay might like two of them and then he passed the rest of them out to whoever else was in the studio. It was like a factory. Like that's how we kind of just kept going. So this beat was laying around. And then one day when Cam came in by himself and, you know, just wasn't there, he basically was like, Go, put that beat up. And I'm gonna make a record to this beat. But the boy thing wasn't really running through the whole song. So he had me loop it so that the boys kept going. Um and that was basically like Cam's way of locking in this record as like, this is my record. Because we would, we would somebody could take a beat and make the record and then we'd be like, oh, okay, well, so-and-so artist did a better record to it, so we're gonna let them roll with it. It was sort of like the Motown thing of, they would demo records with a bunch of different people or whatever, and whoever came out with the best record, that's who will win. So we did this record, it was probably like 3 o'clock, 3.30. When we got done with this, um, and he was just like, you know, Guru, put a rough mix on it. Like, just make it good enough so that people can hear it. And then every day in New York City at five o'clock, DJ Enough gets to play whatever he wants. There's a five o'clock free ride on Hot 97 where he can basically just play whatever record he wants with no programming. It's like one of the only open formats left in New York City because if you know enough, you could be like, here, play this. So Cam basically took the record, went to hot ninety-seven, and had enough play it on the five o'clock free ride. So it's like you make the record at three and it's on the radio at five. And but he was doing that to be like to claim the record, right? Like this is mine and no one else can take this. So it was it was it was dope. And it, it, it kind of introduced um Santana to people that didn't know about him. And um Cam was already hot, you know what I mean? But this record like shot Cam to like real serious superstar status
1: this is a record you said you didn't have to do any work on as, well, I, far did, as I as did as far, work well relatively speaking i'm yeah. saying um do you have an example of something that you did extensive work on as far as um, um uh, beyond normal i would say let me think of something that took a lot to do um as I mentioned earlier, you have spoken in the past about like having to actually work with a sample, um, to some extent. Yeah, um, uh, off the top of your head, if you have an example of something, I'm trying to think along those lines. Took a
2: lot to do. Okay, this is one of my favorite records that I've ever done. Um, for those that don't know, as everyone know, De La Soul anybody ever heard of they also all right they're probably like one of my favorite groups ever so they made this record called grind date and I finally got to like I've known them for a long time their road manager is one of my best friends we went to school together but I actually got to work with them on an album on this record called grind date um and there's another guy named MF doom who for us in the underground is like sort of on God level if for me um because he just exemplifies what we love in the underground. Like he's one of these guys that he wears a mask. He like made this person. He used to be in this group called KMD back in the day, right? Um, With his brother. His brother passed away. So then he just flipped it and totally made this new persona called MF Doom where he takes from the Spider-Man comics, like that character, but he completely developed a whole persona based around being this person. So he wears a mask so that people don't know what he looks like. And that's sort of the thing it's sort of the miles davis turn your back to the audience don't pay attention to me listen to what i'm doing it's that statement and and that's what the mask represents
1: he's gonna be here next week
2: yeah he's an incredible incredible artist his music doesn't really have hooks and stuff like that it's like pure water hip-hop when other people have to like put stuff in it to make soda and all stuff he's like water it's just pure beats and rhymes um so this is a song by De La Soul that features MF Doom. Um, But the reason that I'm gonna play this is because in real life situations, you don't always get to have the music the way that you want. So personally, I would like the song tracked out, you know, every sound every producer is not going to do that. Some producers might just give you a two track and be like, I like the way it sounds. And I'm like begging the producer, like, please come on. Like, I'll track it out. Like, I'll come to your house and know this is the way that I want it. So sometimes you're presented with two tracks and I've come up with like, thank God that we're in the computer age now where I can like steal the kick from here and like filter it and muffle it and put it underneath the real kick and like figure out all these ways to actually make this record sound like the rest of the records on the album where I had a full multi-track and can do whatever I want to it. So sometimes you're locked in to dealing with whatever the reality of life gives you. Um, and this is one of those tracks, but it ended up being an incredible record that is like a, a staple on uh, underground you know, music. And it's called it's called Rock Cocaine Flow. So there was like vocal stuff going on in there where you have to like obviously Jake Jake One produced this, mm-hmm. um, so he like killed it with the like slowing up and and you know speeding up and slowing down of yeah. the beat. So then you kind of gotta like match what you're doing effect wise with the vocals, um, like or at the end, just, just it adds on. Because um, Dave is saying too old, too old to rhyme. Too bad, too late. Because it's like the last record on there, and he's making a statement that like De La's old. You know, they consider themselves old, um, and then he's saying it's too late because now you've just listened to their whole album and you're at the end of it. So it's like it's kind of a play on words, but it's like the stretching out sometimes effects are more for what's going on at the given time and what somebody's saying. So then it's like the slowdown version of him going too old to rhyme too bad too late like you know you can just figure out little neat stuff to do to go along with the record it would seem stupid if they're just rhyming at the same speed while the beat is doing all this intricate stuff so you're kind of playing like you know you have to give credit to jake for doing that with the beat and then credit to daylight for doing that then that leads me to go okay i'm going to do this to go along with what they're doing and present a whole record that way so a lot of times it's based off of again, whatever's going on in the song. But that that was, I I, I love grind 8. Um It's one of my favorite records that I've ever done just because it, it's De La Soul. It's it's at a point in their career where people expected them to be done um, and they just came with a great record. Um, uh, Knife Wonders produced on here and a bunch of people that I, I really respect and love um, did a great job on that record. And then MF Doom is on there. And it was also the only time that I've ever touched dilla music um and that was after he passed away and if, if dilla's like one of my favorite if you just listen to anything hip-hop jay dilla is the person that you should listen to um his catalog will show you the complete range of what can be done with hip-hop music um and he's probably one of the greatest producers of this era because he took every single thing that came before him and put it all together and then just took it to another level. Like I've said before, to me he's sort of the Michael Jordan of hip hop beat making because this guy was just, that's all, he didn't care about the flash, the money, none of that stuff. He was just into making music and Dilla was probably the greatest representation that I could give to someone to be like, this is hip hop production. Um, is Jay Dilla. And then Doom was on this too. You should check out Doom. Um, his album Food, to me, is another hip-hop classic that's very underrated, uh, but really shows what can happen when someone thinks and is not on this commercial, like I need to sell records. Doom is very much like, I have a set audience and I feed them and that's it. But Food is, is a great concept album. Um, and yeah, that's one of my, Grind Date is definitely one of my favorite albums. Just go on there and do it. And just make music. Like, that's the whole thing. Is It's like, the business is what it is. You know what I mean? You deal with that later. But don't let nothing take away that initial, like, you shouldn't be doing this if you don't love it And whatever you do. Like, that's the whole thing. Like, I say this all the time. Like, if I didn't love this so much, I would not deal with it because there's so much nonsense that goes along with it, but it's that I love it. Like, if I, you know, when you're a little kid and people are like, okay, my father was like, yo, the key to life is the if you're rich, what would you wake up and do every day? I would wake up and search for records. You know what I mean? That's my joy, that's what I do, that's what I love. Like, don't let anybody take away at any point your love of what you do. It's always vibe over money, vibe over money, vibe. It has to feel right first. No amount of money should take away what feels right. And if it don't feel right, no amount of money should make you do it. Like, you'll know when you're like broadening yourself or when you're selling out for money. You'll know. It'll be a feeling. You know what I mean? And just don't go with that feeling like that's the short money to sell out and do the commercial but you feel like oh my god this is like totally not representing me then just don't do it just give that money to some let somebody else make that money always vibe over money always
1: let's say thanks everybody to young guru
2: (laughs) i told you i'm not used to people clapping for me
0: Hey, this is Todd Burns again. Thanks for listening to Couch Wisdom. Uh, Before you go, I just wanted to take a moment to tell you about the Academy. The Red Bull Music Academy is a world traveling series of music workshops and festivals. Almost every year since 1998, we've done the main Academy event in one city. The lecture you just heard, for instance, was from the Academy in Madrid. But we do events uh, around the world throughout the year. And among other things, we've got an online radio station and an online magazine. In short, it's a lot of stuff, uh, but it's all pretty cool, in my opinion, anyway. Uh, If you want to find out more for yourself, you can check us out at redbullmusicacademy.com.